Greetings and, and welcome everyone to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JEMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us once again for Author in the Room. As you know, these calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what was published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. The next call is on Wednesday, May 19th, uh, and the article is a part of the Rational Clinical Exam section of JAMA, the title being, Will This Patient Develop Persistent Disabling Low Back Pain by Dr. Roger Chu? And that article occurred in uh, the April 7, 2010 issue of JAMA. So please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to consider doing so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Mary Tinetti, first author of the article, The Patient Who Falls, It's Always a Trade-Off, which appeared in the January 20th, 2010 issue of JAMA. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Tinetti is a professor of medicine and public health, and the director of the program on aging at Yale University School of Medicine. Uh, as is witnessed by the number of people who signed on to this call, Mary is extremely uh, popular in this field and well-known, and we're delighted that so many people have joined us. As a moderator uh, for today's call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Tinetti's research, and in this case, this review article on the goal of driving performance improvement based on the content. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you, the listeners, to interact directly with the author about the issues addressed in this article. We will help translate uh, these issues into changes applicable in your practice. Here's how the, the hour will proceed. Dr. Tenetti will spend about 10 minutes summarizing uh, the article, and I will take just a few more minutes to draw out some implications for real-world real practice. We want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. As we turn the calls over to question and answer, we both would like your questions, but also would encourage you to give your experiences and some of the areas that will be addressed today. It's a great forum for which you can get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from Dr. Tinetti to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. There are approximately 300 uh, phone lines connected to today's call with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. Of one other note, this call, like others, uh, is recorded and will be available on the IHI and JEMA websites. Let's get started. Once again, let me introduce Dr. Mary Tinetti, who will provide an overview of her article. Dr. Tinetti? Thank you, Dr. Kylo. As you know, this article was part of the Care of the Aging from Evidence to Action series from JAMA. In each article, including this one, we begin with a real case, present the evidence that's relevant to the clinical problem, and then address the practical issues involved in translating this evidence into practice. So let's begin with discussing very briefly Mr. Y, who's probably very similar to many of the older patients you know or take care of. He's an 80-year-old retired uh, salesman who had a right humeral fracture followed a few months later by a left hip fracture. After repair and rehabilitation for his hip fracture, he moved in with his daughter, who was a physical therapist. His medical history includes coronary artery bypass grafting, aortic valve replacement, dementia, hypertension, gout, peptic ulcer disease, macular degeneration, and bilateral hearing aids. He also previously had heavy alcohol use. When he moved in with his daughter, he reported left hip pain in an unsteady gait. He became delirious when taking oxycodone. Um, his daughter eventually brought him to see um, Dr. C, a, a geriatrician, and at that point he scored 28 out of 30 on his Folstein mental status exam, um, missing uh, the date and recalled two out of three objects. The missing objects plus his abnormal clock drawing meant that he did have a positive screen for dementia. He was at that time independent in his basic activities of daily living, such as bathing and dressing, but needed help with instrumental activities such as shopping and taking his medications. At that time, his medications included aspirin, metropolol, 
Lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, simvastatin, omeprazole, allopurinol, hydrocodone, uh, and nitroglycerin. His blood pressure was under reasonable control at 148 over 60. He was not orthostatic. He did not drop his blood pressure on standing, did not have evidence of heart failure, um, but did have left hip and knee weakness and was tender over pal with palpation over his trochanteric area. His blood tests were uh, normal. His hip x-ray showed non-union and bony collapse, and a previous MRI scan of the brain had revealed multiple infarcts. Dr. C, the geriatrician at that time, changed his uh, medication hydrochloric codone uh, to around-the-clock uh, dosing and started uh, vitamin D at 400 uh, international units. He also went to an orthopedist who injected steroids into his left trochanteric bursal area and his pain improved. He had undergone some physical therapy until he was noted to plateau and he was discharged using a rolling walker. Uh, he, over the next couple of months, continued to fall, uh, and particularly had one fall after taking diphenhydramine for a cold. He had another fall after taking nitroglycerin tablets, and at that point was seen in the uh, emergency department, where he was noted now to drop his blood pressure upon standing and to complain of dizziness. Uh, he was sent home, and when Dr. C saw him, uh, stopped the lisinopril and reduced his uh, metropolol and his dizziness resolved. The fall, however, had exacerbated his left hip pain and he eventually underwent removal of his left uh, hip fixation plate and screws and we started on physical therapy. At that time, his vitamin D dose was increased to 800 units and since then he had no previous falls. So as is well uh, illustrated by Dr. C, falling can have a very lasting effect on comfort and functioning and can impose family and societal burdens. Um, putting in a consequence of the frequency of falling, we know that about a third of people, community living people over the age of 65 fall each year. About one out of 10, 10% of these falls result in a major injury such as a hip fracture, serious soft tissue injury, or traumatic brain injury. And particularly we know that traumatic brain injury are increasing in frequency. Falls are major contributors to functional decline in healthcare utilization, um, and including uh, nursing home placement. As with other conditions affecting older adults, such as delirium and incontinence, we classify falls as geriatric syndromes. Defining features of geriatric syndromes include a contribution of multiple factors and interactions, particularly between what we call chronic predisposing diseases and impairments and precipitating insults that occur at the time of the fall. In understanding why falls occur so commonly in older people, it's important to remember that the ability to walk uh, upright and transfer safely, and, and human is the only species that is able to do that, really depends on very careful coordination among sensory inputs, including vision, vestibular function, and proprioception, central and peripheral nervous systems, cardiopulmonary, musculoskeletal, and other systems. And we know that most falls that occur during daily activities usually result from diseases or impairments affecting one and usually more than one of these multiple sy symptoms. In preparing this article, Dr. Kumar and I uh, completed three systematic reviews focused, again, in this particular article on community living older adults, and there certainly have been studies done in, in hospitals and nursing homes as well. Um, in our first review, looked at identifying the multiple impairments and conditions that predispose to falling. The second systematic review specifically focused on identifying effective physical therapy and exercise interventions because that's the most common single intervention that has been subjected to, to randomized control trials. And finally, the third uh, addressed effective multifactorial interventions. To very briefly summarize the evidence that uh, we found from these systematic reviews. The uh, first uh, review uh, identified the independent risk factors contributing to falls, and the results appear in Table 1 of the article. The strongest independent risk factors for falling include previous falls, strength, gait, and balance impairments, and the use of specific medications. And this is important as we think about intervention strategies. Um, we also know from the literature that the risk of falling increases with the number of risk factors occur, again, in concert with our definition of, of geriatric syndromes. And again, this is important when thinking about intervention strategies.
Medications are probably the most complex risk factors for falling because obviously diseases such as depression, heart failure, or hypertension um, may increase fall risk, but also may the medications that we use to treat them. Also, we know that common adverse medication effects such as unsteadiness, impaired alertness, and dizziness are risk factors for falling. So adverse medication symptoms are risk factors for falling. Finally, we know from several systematic reviews that the medication groups that are particularly seem to be linked to falling include psychoactive medications such as sedatives, antipsychotics and antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and antihypertensives. Uh, moving on to intervention studies, um, both single as well as multifactorial interventions have been investigated in randomized control trials. The single interventions evaluated include cardiac pacing, vision improvement, home safety modifications, medication reduction, and physical therapy or exercise. The evidence is still insufficient to determine the role of cardiac pacing in, in fall prevention. We need more studies before we can know for sure, but evidence does support the uh, uh, first cataract surgery and home safety modifications in at-risk at group of individuals, particularly those after hospitalization or those who have had a previous fall. Medication reduction also appears to be an effective individual intervention, although it has been shown that withdrawal of psychoactive medications, although effective if possible, and probably those of you in practice know, can be very difficult to accomplish. By far and away, the most common single intervention has been exercise or physical therapy, and there have now been 25 trials of either Tai Chi or combinations of strength, gait, balance, and endurance training. And the evidence definitely supports progressive balance, strength, and perhaps ex uh, uh, endurance training for fall prevention. By far the way, the most common strategy has been to study multifactorial interventions, that is targeting multiple intervention, multiple risk factors simultaneously. And the results remain somewhat uh, conflicting, although the, the, some of the evidence, including our review as well as the recent Cochrane review, does support uh, the uh, incorporation of multifactorial interventions as long as it's clear that those interventions are carried out in practice. Uh, the components of the most effective trials include multiple risk factor assessment, physical therapy or exercise, withdrawal or minimization of psychoactive and other medications, and home safety modification. Um, it is important to note, um, apropos of Mr. Y, that the effectiveness of fall prevention, unfortunately, in cognitively impaired older adults remains somewhat unknown. Um, in our review, we also did look at uh, factors for improving bone health, because that's also important in fall prevention as well as fall prevention. And in, in older men, there still is no consensus regarding sc appropriate screening for osteoporosis. And to date, the only clearly compelling evidence for effectiveness for prevention in older men is vitamin D at at least 800 or 1,000 international units. So in translating very briefly this evidence into clinical practice, the first clinical issue is deciding who should be uh, screened and evaluated for fall prevention. And the evidence supports that individuals over 65, although some people would use the age of 70, who present with a fall, report at least one injurious fall or two or more non-injurious falls, or report or display unsteady gait or balance using something like the up, get up and go that is shown in the in the box for the article. Um, so if previous fall, um, injurious falls, either report or display unsteady gait or balance should undergo risk factor assessment and management. Uh, and certainly the multifactorial nature of fall prevention means that care must be coordinated coordinated among multiple care providers, including usually physicians, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and others. And the setting for fall assessment and management can be 
primary care office, specialty offices, special fall clinics, um, rehabilitation facilities. But regardless of the location or disciplines involved, effective strategies really does require um, assessing each of the individual risk factors and, and monitoring them and managing as many of them as uh, possible. And I think it's also important to point out, and it was pointed out in the article, that potential trade-offs must be considered in, formu in formulating the assessment and management strategies because older adults at risk for falling also have other compelling health problems as well. The assessment should uh, focus first on determining the circumstances of falling because people tend to fall under similar circumstances over time. And then, again, identifying the risk factors that put people at risk for falling, particularly those that should be targeted in interventions. And this, uh, these risk factors and the linked interventions are shown in Table 3 of the article. In the examination related to fall uh, prevention, cognitive evaluation, particularly executive function, frontal lobe, including either the exit or the clock drawing. Postural blood pressure is particularly important and is often neglected in clinical practice. Um, muscle strength, range of motion, um, and attention to balance and gait, as I mentioned previously. Uh, we want to use the results of the assessment to plan our interventions. And again, as I mentioned, that the evidence would support that it's improving as many of the factors listed in Table 3 as possible is probably the most effective strategy. And certainly I want to focus particularly on medication reduction, physical therapy, and home safety modifications as having the strongest evidence of linking, uh, linked evidence for preventing falls in clinical practice. Uh, as I mentioned, medications are particularly difficult to, uh, to address, but we, we're probably not going to do very well at preventing falls if we don't address the medication is, issue. And in clinical practice, what I try to do is if, they complain, if people complain of dizziness or lightheadedness on standing or they use four or more medications, then that prompts me to measure their postural blood pressure and attempt to reduce the number or the doses of medications to the extent that's possible. And again, want to particularly address those medications listed on Table 3 that we know are particularly linked to falling. And we, don't, we certainly do know that in the presence of multiple health conditions, one needs to, to consider the trade-offs between benefits and risks of medications, particularly when we know that treating one of their conditions may worsen another. And I think we often get sort of, people get started on medications, they get continued over time. And so I think it very often is possible, and certainly in my practice I've found, that it really is possible to eliminate unnecessary medications and reduce the dose of, of necessary medications, therefore simultaneously treating their multiple coexisting conditions while also minimizing the risk of falling. So moving on to physical therapy and home safety evaluation, one can either refer someone to home care, particularly if they're homebound, and where a nurse or physical therapist or occupational therapist can do the home assessment, or if not homebound, there are uh, evaluations that individuals can use on their own, and those are, and some of the, we, uh, those are listed in the resource page of the article. If people are homebound, they can get uh, physical therapy and home care under a certified home care agency. But if not homebound, then they need to be referred to outpatient uh, rehabilitation. And I have found that very often we wait too long to refer people to rehabilitation, that we wait until something has happened rather than thinking about people having their gait and balance and strength improved before before the falls occur. So I think that's probably something that in our practice we can all probably do sooner than we do presently. Physical therapy, again, evidence-based practice would suggest that it should include progressive standing balance and strength exercises, transfer practice, um, improving gait and balance, including evaluation and training and appropriate use of assistive devices. Probably we should think about endurance training such as walking or elliptical once individuals become safe doing that and thinking about referring people to community programs. Um, if you don't know where you can find them, uh, I find that the area agencies on aging can be a wealth of information for programs available in your community. Um, as is evident for Mr. Y, uh, persons at risk for falling face a particular trade-off between safety and functional independence. Um, 
Mr. Y wanted to be more independent. His daughter wanted him to be safer. safer. And very often this requires negotiations between and among the family to ensure that there is some balance between safety and independence. And we can talk about more about that if there's any questions concerning how we can go about doing that. Um, also is really quite evident from, from Mr. Y is that falling uh, certainly imposed on other problems such as dementia can be a, a great burden to care providers and that's in, it's very important in addition to treating the patients to address the burden to the caregivers uh, trying to take care of patients like Mr. C. Uh, and again, the uh, families and caregivers if possible should be referred to social agencies or support groups and again, I find that the local area agencies on aging can be a great resource. Geriatric care managers um, also can be a source of assistance, although most insurance companies uh, don't cover this cost. Uh, for those of us in practice, we know that what we want to do is, is, is challenging and certainly uh, fall prevention in older people who have multiple other conditions has a lot of challenges including time constraints, competing demands, and in inadequate reimbursement. Um, also I think it, it really points up to for us the lack of coordination that occurs across disciplines and settings in our current healthcare uh, setting and hopefully some of the health, current healthcare reforms may improve coordination, improve that particular aspect. But I think I would conclude by saying that with the use of screening tools, considerations of trade-offs among the multiple conditions, and reliance on members of the healthcare team, evidence-based fall risk assessment and management is feasible and pretty compelling evidence of effectiveness. And with that, I can stop and uh, take your questions. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Kennedy. Appreciate it. Uh, this article holds a wealth of information, more than we could possibly cover in one call. We do want to turn now to your questions or comments about the article and uh, allow you to interact with Dr. Tanetti. We'll do so in an orderly manner. Uh, I will ask uh, Rika to come on and give us instructions as to how to get in the queue, and we will move to your calls. Rika? Thank you, sir. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key, followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key, followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. And we'll start with our first question from Sarah Dempsey with Clark Summit Hospital. Good afternoon. Great, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for the lecture. I like, uh, really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your busy schedule to help us out with, uh, I guess, this information. Sure. Uh, I work in a psychiatric uh, inpatient unit, and patients receiving acute care for treatment of uh, psychiatric uh, or psychotic disorders are always at risk for falling, as you know. Um, complex medication, regimens, uh, you know, uh, psychomotor agitation, et cetera, actually contributes to a lot of the falls. But what I'm trying to find, what I'm trying to find out is like, you know, what best prescribing practices you would recommend uh, to assist us in maybe lowering some of those numbers. Well, thank you. You've probably identified by far and away the most difficult group. Certainly psychiatric patients um, do have the highest uh, fall rate of, of any group of patients, and it certainly is that group in which the trade-off between their fall risk and management of their psychiatric centrum systems really becomes very, very difficult and complex. And so obviously there's no overall single answer, but I think there's a couple of strategies that you can do to try to do that trade-off between, between managing their psychiatric symptoms and keeping them as safe as possible. The first thing is that this is a group of people that really should have their postural blood pressure checked on a regular basis because most of those psychoactive medications do increase risk of, 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 uh, of postural hypotension. So lying, lying flat for five minutes, postural blood pressure lying, and then standing I think is important fairly frequently. Second of all is really to focus on minimizing, really be clear of what your target symptom is and really be very clear on minimizing the use of psychoactive medications. So what is the, rather than thinking of what's the maximum dose that this individual needs, is what's the minimum dose that's going to keep their symptoms under control. 
third of all is to think about their other medications as well, as if they're on multiple medications that are going to approach their blood pressure. Can we reduce some of their other cardiovascular medications? And finally, I think this is a group of people that probably sooner rather than later should be seen by physical therapy to make sure that their balance and their strength is as good as it possibly can be. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we'll take our next question from Karen Miguel with Mass General Hospital. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Tinetti. Hello. Um, I'm the safety officer in, in, in Mass General, one of, our, in one of our departments, the imaging department. And um, recognizing that we have an, a large inpatient population with a huge focus on how to minimize and literally eliminate falls, we also have a high-risk environment in the outpatient, particularly in our imaging. Um, about 70% of our patients are outpatient, and we face the challenge of evaluating them um, in a fairly uh, brisk environment where the encounters are anywhere from 10 minutes to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So allowing or at least having some, uh, some standard process of, of offering assistance in an intervention um, and feeling like you have some I don't want to say meat on the bone, but at least you're doing something that, you know, can trigger you to identify these patients fairly quickly and early. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so right, so obviously in your setting, your, your, your goal is not to do the interventions that we're talking about here, Correct. but to identify those who are at risk who then can need closer supervision during the time they're in your unit. And I would say that the simplest is if they look unsteady, they're unsteady. And it's really as simple as that. Um, and it doesn't take, you know, we use the get up and go test, which is probably as you're seeing people stand up from their chair and walking across the hall, if they look at all unsteady, that is actually a very quick and very, very sensitive t test. So if they look particularly steady, I wouldn't worry about it. If they look at all unsteady, then they're people that you really should be observed during the entire time they're with your, with your unit. I think it's, it's probably as both as simple as that and particularly as complex as that because obviously trying to find the staff available to watch people can be very difficult. But, but really observed unsteadiness really does work okay. as a screening tool. Great. So the handoff piece to this kind of has been where our challenge has been. So yes, uh, we have a brief questionnaire. We identify the risk. We give them the service or the additional support mm -hmm. while they're here. Um, what kind of strategies or have you heard of strategies that we could think about on the handoff? So we've identified a risk, and then what do we do with this information? So how important is it to get it, the information to someone or to consider the encounter uh, defined as ended, and you're kind of leaving these people back to their their faculties of trying to get from you know the middle of a building to a parking lot. So, right. well, I think you're at you're, you're asking a question that's probably beyond the scope of of this particular this call. But yeah. I think what 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 your obligation is once you've identified them is unsafe, then it behooves your uh, facility to to provide the supervision till the time they're no longer under your care, which is probably the time that they're leaving the hospital. Right. And certainly, as you point out, now with the increased scrutiny to falls that occur in the hospital, your institution is probably going to be much more uh, willing to provide that supervision than they would have been even a year ago. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. The get up and go test seems to be just a particularly useful, probably still underutilized test in, uh, in many settings, including most primary care settings, I would imagine. I think that's exactly correct, and it, it really does take no training and takes less than, less than a minute to complete, and it can be completely incorporated into your encounter. It's just you can really just as I mean, it, it's very few, there's almost very few encounters where at some point they're not standing up and walking across the room, and it really, it, it, it does not take a lot of, uh, of training. It's just really, really the only observation that you really need to do is do they look unsteady or not. I mean, there's, there's much more complicated ways that you can score it and time it, but I don't think that's necessary in clinical practice. I think just right. if they look unsteady, they're unsteady. I think another key thing that we've talked about and others may have a question about as well, Dr. Tenetti, is the referral to physical therapy for exercise training. So I, I do, or for, uh, for balance training, I do this, or I would say a reasonable amount, but I'm never quite sure if uh, what the physical therapists are doing with the patient. What should, I, what should I be doing to assure that the physical therapists are doing the right thing by the patient? 
Well, that's an excellent question because I think until uh, recently, uh, physical therapy, just like nursing and medicine, really didn't quite understand what to do in terms of taking care of uh, geriatric patients. And I think when we first started doing the work on, on falls, we found that the physical therapists were very nervous about uh, prescribing progressive balance programs to older people, particularly out in the community by themselves, because they're worried appropriately so that, that falls might happen. But we know that you're not going to be able to improve people's balance or their muscle strength if we don't stress it and progress it. So when I pre uh, refer someone to physical therapy, I'm very clear to say I want a uh, balance, gait, and muscle strength evaluation and progressive balance and strength exercise program and uh, gait uh, management and uh, assessment for appropriate assistive device. So I'm pretty specific in my prescription to the physical therapist. And also I find that I, in my community, I try to find physical therapists who really do understand fall prevention so that I know that I'm sending them to physical therapists who really do understand and can do progressive balance and strength training for people out in the community. All right, would you like to take your next question, ma'am? Yes. All right, our next question comes from Kelly Wilson with Interior Health. Hi, uh, I'm phoning from Canada actually, and I wanted to know what you thought about recommending the use of hip protectors to prevent hip fractures in high-risk uh, seniors who are at risk for falling. That's an excellent question, and hip, hip protectors, and, and as, you, as, as you well know, there's been now several studies um, conducted throughout the world looking at the issue of hip protectors. And it's one of those things that the more we study, the less we know. The original studies were conducted in nursing homes, uh, in long-term care facilities, primarily in Europe, and showed very, very effective reducing the occurrence of falls and, and hip, I'm sorry, the occurrence of hip fractures by about half. The more recent studies have been much more mixed, including studies showing that not only is there not a benefit, but a couple of studies showing question of even increase in, in hip uh, in hip fractures. And, and so probably it's, it's an area that we still, I think, is, is still an active investigation and is probably we still don't know if there are some hip protectors that are better than others. Um, we also don't yet know how to get people to use them um, consistently. Um, many of the falls happen at nighttime when people have them on. Uh, the, very often after we wash the, uh, the, the garment that holds the hip protectors, lose, loses much of its uh, elasticity. So right now, I think the, the, they're probably not used on any wide um, basis. I think there probably are some facilities that have found them to be effective, but I, I don't recommend them, recommend them on any broad basis as of yet, and I think it's still an area of active investigation. I just wanted to let you know that Dr. Fabio Feldman here in British Columbia has just done a research study on evaluating and testing different models, makes and models of hip protectors for their ability to um, absorb the impact from, from falls. Mm -hmm. And um, he's going to be publishing an article shortly. And he's also just got a whole bunch of money to, with the Canadian Institute for Health Research to do um, research on hip protector compliance, mm -hmm. so um, issues around compliance. Good, so, so maybe I, we'll know. It's going to be very promising. I think yeah. it's very exciting work. Good. Thank you. Very Thank important you. work. Um, Dr. Tenetti, the, uh, a couple of things sort of are, um, I think, swirling around my mind. One is that uh, it sounds like from your discussion and recommendations, we need to be sensitive to the issues of falls much earlier, even in people we wouldn't necessarily ordinarily suspect it. And you recommended starting that screening at age 65, which seems fairly young to me, uh, although I buy it. Uh, and the second piece is that uh, as we get older, and it's, it's not necessarily that, that, that younger group that may just have some risk factors for falls, it's the older group that has just a lot of risk factors for falls, and they're the really complicated ones. Then it becomes, a, I think, a fundamental shifting of the focus of care. Uh, and um, and those are, that's, a, that's a tough issue. Uh, maybe we could deal with the first one first. You did say sort of 65 is when we should start screening. So what I said is that, right, 65, some groups recommend 65, some groups recommend 70. 
Uh, And the reason I think for 65 is that there are those 65-year-olds who are physiologically older. I think certainly a healthy 65-year-old would probably still be at relatively low risk. Um, So somewhere between 65 and 70 is where the occurrence of falls start to increase. And again, remember that the uh, screening is purely have you had a fall and do you look steady. Right. So it certainly doesn't take much time to do that. Um, so that's I, great. So in, yeah. in my mind, in my practice, it's have you had a fall? Do they look get the get up and go test? Do they exactly. look steady? And um, and if they don't look steady, we're going to screen for their medic. We're going to look at their medications, and we're going to think about sending them off to physical therapy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Now in this older group where they're they have multiple comorbidities, then we get in the trouble of you know the person who's on the ten or fifteen medications. Uh, and it becomes very complex. Uh, and you and I discussed earlier about you know issues around any one of those therapies has a fairly low number needed to treat, a fairly high number needed to treat for effectiveness. Then I, it, it seems like we really fundamentally begin to shift our focus of care and need to engage the, the individual as we begin to taper them off of medications that people have told them they need for a long time. Uh, it's, a, it's a different conversation, a different focus on our objectives of caring with them that we need to have. And and that's exactly right, is I think what happens is most of the clinical trial evidence we have for benefits of medications are done one disease at a time in a relatively healthy and a relatively young population. And then we attempt to extrapolate that information, and certainly quality improvement uh, programs extrapolate that information from relatively young individuals with a single disease into 80-year-olds, 85-year-olds with multiple diseases. And, and that's exactly right, is if you, it, the benefit of each of those individuals individual medications is probably relatively small and when you start accumulating multiple different conditions then I think eventually I think what we're going to see is focused away from treating individual diseases more towards treating what I call universal outcomes. What's the condition that's most affecting the outcome of, of importance to the individual whether it's function, symptoms, or longevity and then I try to focus my medication regimen towards the outcome that's most important to the individual rather than towards each of the individual diseases. And that's very often how, how, if we change our thinking to that direction, we can minimize medications much much easier than when we try to treat each individual disease separately. And that's a much more complex strategy than, uh, than, than we're taught uh, in, in our training and, and we're, we're taught by our specialist colleagues to try to get their blood pressure control under control, their diabetic, diabetes under control, their cholesterol under control. Uh, it, 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 it adds up fairly quickly. Fascinating area for development. Great. Rika, next question. Of course, and we'll take our next question from Lisa Hershiser with Lancaster General Hospital. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. My question, um, they touched on a little bit in the previous question with the get up and go test and the uh, performance oriented mobility assessment. The get up and go test, um, what you were saying is great for the outpatient setting. Would you then recommend the uh, performance-oriented mobility if they failed or for an inpatient setting? Uh, it depends upon who you're speaking to. If you're, if you're speaking about the, um, make the physician or nurse making the decision whether or not someone needs physical therapy, I think the get-up-and-go is fine everywhere because uh, they're either safer or they're either uh, steady or they're not. If you're talking about a physical therapist who wants to assess the quality of of the gait and walking and mobility, so they can decide to what to intervene upon, and they can monitor response to treatment, then obviously they need a more a more sensitive test, such as the performance oriented mobility assessment. So I think it depends upon what the purpose for screening. I think across the board, something as simple as the get up and go is appropriate if it's to really assess the quality of the gait and the components of abnormalities than the performance-oriented mobility assessment or, or several other re- similar uh, tests are, are more appropriate. So the get-up-and-go test you would recommend for both inpatient and outpatient use? 
Yes. What I, what I always say is the best test is the one that you're willing to do. Are you talking about purely for screening whether somebody is uh, steady? It's steady. Or at risk for falling? For high risk for falls. Yes. Right. And you're, so you're talking about sort of nurses or physicians? Um, nurses. Primarily. Yes, the get up and go is fine in a hospital or inpatient or outpatient setting. Yes. Thank now the you. problem in the problem in the hospital, if if your hospital is in like our hospital, they have those low chairs that are very difficult to get out of. So that's that's a very good screening test. If they can get out of those hospital low ch low uh, chairs, then then they definitely. I think that's a very good uh, screening test. Thank yes, you. it's fine. It should be fine in that setting. Great. Thank you. Lisa. Good question, Rika. All right, and we'll take our next question from Stephen Bartels with Dartmouth. Good afternoon. Um, I have a, uh, I, I think, fairly straightforward question, which is um, given the, the high rate of, uh, of depression as a risk factor, and it looks like the meta-analyses or the studies increase the risk of falls by about two times, uh, two questions. One, what do you think is the mechanism? Is it inattention? Is it something else? And secondly, why is it that both in your recommended um, screens as well as the recently um, released uh, uh, AGS guidelines that screening for depression is not listed as in the algorithm? Um, okay, so uh, well, I do list depression as one of the risk factors, um, and I think it. We'll have to look at my. I don't think it's in the. I don't think it's in the screening recommendations okay. though. Okay. Same thing with the AGS guidelines. If you look at the boxes of things to screen for, mm -hmm. doing a THQ2 or something like that is not, not mentioned. I was wondering why that is. Um, probably an oversight, to be perfectly frank, if it's, if it's not in there, because it should, you're exactly right. Depression has been repeatedly shown to be a risk factor for falling, as, as you well know, are all antidepressants. So it, that is really a catch-22. Um, yep. uh, and, and so it's part of our screen we do. We do either the CESD or the, um, the two-item question, I think, is quite fine as well. As you know, it's just as sensitive as the, as the longer test. Right. Um, and in that group of people who do screen positive, then certainly the um, need to be treated for the depression. And I think this is a group that particularly you want to do that sort of, again, that balance between, be, between their fall risk and, and, improving their, um, and, and improving their depressive symptoms. So, so thank you for uh, raising that oversight. D depression definitely is, should be a component. Talk about the mechanism when the antidepressant hasn't yet been prescribed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not sure everybody knows for sure what, what the exact mechanism is. Uh, mechanism is. Certainly inattention probably is a component of it. Um, and, but beyond, be, beyond the inattention and the fact that people with depression are also at risk for a lot of other uh, health conditions, beyond that I'm not aware that we necessarily know what the, uh, you know, what's, what's the causative mechanisms. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very good question. I appreciate that. Uh, Rika? All right, we'll take our next question from Colleen O'Brien with Queensway Carlson Hospital. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is uh, Bonnie Maravitz. I'm working with Colleen. And we have a geriatric day hospital unit which sees excuse me, frail elderly people who live in the community. And I was wondering if there are any studies out there that are using the POMA assessment tool uh, as a screening uh, for this particular population. We use the TUG, we use the Get Up and Go, the Berg, and we are using the Tenetti tool in our own setting, but I was wondering if there are any studies that are validating the uh, POMA assessment. Um, that's a good question. So the POMA is the performance-oriented mobility assessment uh, that we created several years ago. Um, there have been over the years many different studies looking at the POMA as a uh, predictor of fall risk and also as a measure of uh, response to intervention, whether it's medication management or physical therapy. So it has been, it has been studied um, quite uh, frequently over the years. And I will tell you a couple of things. Number one is the studies that have looked at, and we have done this and others have, if you correlate 
the timed up and go, the Berg balance scale, the performance-oriented mobility assessment, and several others, they're very highly correlated, not surprisingly. They're all measuring the same thing. And so people very often ask me, well, what's the best test? And again, I, I say whichever test you're willing to do is, is, is the best test because I think we have so long neglected looking at balance and gait that I'm happy if people are looking at anything. So I think for whatever setting that you're, that you're in, um, the, the, the test that works best for you, I think, is 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 really quite good. Again, if you want to, if you if you're just predicting who's at risk for falling. Again, if you want to monitor response to treatment, then the performance-oriented mobility assessment or the Berg is better than the Tug, just because it's more sensitive to change. That has been our experience, finding that they did correlate yes. with our population, and yes. we are using the uh, POM as well to evaluate the effectiveness effectiveness of treatment. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Very good questions. Uh, Rika? Of course. We'll take our next question from Claire Levisque with Tufts Health Plan. Hello. It's a pleasure to hear this talk. Um, I have a couple of questions. The first question is, it seems to be sometimes a challenge to get doctors to view this as an important thing to do. So how do you convince them to actually uh, do the get up and go test? We talk about uh, an inpatient uh, or outpatient or both. Mostly in in, in a say a busy primary care office. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I think that's, that's a good question. I don't want to pick on doctors. I find it hard to get anybody to do <laughs> sometimes to, to do the attention. I think until very recently, I think people didn't realize that falling was as big of a clinical issue as it has been. So I think we have found that that has been uh, one of our major challenges is to increase the awareness of these frequency and importance of, of falling as a, as a health event. One of the things that, that we have done is, is show evidence um, to our physicians that when you, in, when you consider the frequency of falling plus the morbidity, it really is quite comparable to strokes. And so that's our first strategy is just really heighten people's awareness of, of the importance. The second thing is I think people are very concerned about adding on, you know, particularly in a primary care setting. We're asking primary care doctors who really have sometimes 15 minutes to see a patient. We're asking them to do more and more with less and less time. And so I'm very, very sensitive to that issue. And so one of the things that I really do to our primary care practices, even rather than saying, you know, do the get up and go, is just really to say as, as you're in, in the midst of your encounter, just use the information that you already have with the observation. Are they safe or unsafe? And I say, if you don't have the time to do any further evaluation, all you need to do is see that they're unsafe and then refer them to physical therapy who can do the further further evaluation. Um, that's been a strategy that, that we have found has is, is, is worked best. But I, I share your concern is that, is, is that I think it's not that primary care doctors are not wanting to do it. It's just I think there's so many time demands that, that we're trying to make it as, as, as quick and, and simple as possible. But I think just inc incorporating it into, you know, because th no matter how short the encounter is, there's some movement that happens during that encounter and just use that observation. It, 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 is, it is a hard thing to do sometimes. Uh, it was interesting. I was at a, uh, an appointment and they asked me about my fall risk and then they asked me if I needed help getting changed, and I actually thought that was probably not a bad question to get at some of that's this. That's right. Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think that, that's, and that, I think that's an excellent point, is incorporate it into what you're already doing, and that, that's as good as, as, as any other question. Any, anything that suggests of instability or unsteadiness or difficulty with mobility. And I have a question about treatment. There's a lot of uh, companies out there marketing different treatments, on helping your memory and then also helping what they call usable field of vision and they say that reduces your risk of falling. Have you, do you have any experience with that? Um, I know that um, companies are marketing a lot of things. They're marketing, you know, fall detection and alarms. And uh, um, I'm not. I know that the visual, uh, uh, useful visual field has been used for driving in older adults. I've, I've not. I'm not aware of of the work looking at it in terms of predicting or, or treating falls. Um, I'd be a little surprised because. 
you don't need a whole lot of visual feel to be able to maneuver safely. Um, depth perception is very important. Depth perception is probably the visual function that's been most uh, linked to falling. So I'm not aware of that information, and I, I have to see the data because I'm physiologically it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I certainly could be wrong. It's interesting. I'll try to see if I can find anything on that. Yeah, sometimes they talk about divided attention, which is... Well, divided attention is a very different issue. Divided attention is a frontal lobe, an executive function, and divided attention has to do with can you attend to more than one set of information simultaneously. That is important. That is an important issue for, for falling, is you're maneuvering through the environment and uh, try to uh, avoid obstacles. So divided attention, and they do it in different ways. Uh, in clinical practice, one of the easiest ways to do that is we call the walk and talk test. You have somebody walk down the hall and do uh, uh, mathematics, ask, ask them to subtract you know, f five from 100 or something. So they're trying to do both a mental task as, as well as a physical task. That is a very simple and good test for predicting, uh, predicting falls as well. So divided attention, frontal lobe, very, very important. Yes. Thank you. Very good. Well, Rico, let's see if we can get in one more question. All right, and we'll take our last question from Barbara Liu with University of Toronto. Hello. 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 Um, several hospitals in our area are embarking on strategies to make themselves more senior friendly, acute care hospitals. Is there evidence for falls prevention in the acute care setting? And if you were going to embark on a quality improvement initiative in a hospital, would you recommend that we target falls prevention as the target outcome, or is early mobilization as a target outcome for quality improvement a better first step, no pun intended? <laughs> aside from the aside from the pun, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, in this country, now there's been such a push towards uh, fall prevention in the hospital, and my concern is that most of these hospitals have gone towards. Uh, bed alarms um, that, if anything, impede mobility rather than improve mobility. Um, there have been many fewer uh, randomized trials in a hospital setting than an outpatient setting. What se the strategies that seem to work most effectively uh, seem to be uh, low beds, uh, frequent walks to the bathroom, and minimizing psychoactive medications are probably the most effective strategies in the hospital. And I agree with you completely. Knowing the adverse effects of immobilization in the hospital, that if I was going to do a quality improvement study, I would definitely focus on early mobilization rather than, rather than fall prevention in a hospital setting. I think, you know, I think the, the concern about preventing falls in the hospital, I'm very concerned are going to have some unintended consequences by, by reducing mobilization in, at a time that's probably very counterproductive. So I would applaud your efforts to focus on early mobilization. Right. With, with early mobilization being a key intervention to attempt to reduce falls, Correct. the outcome is the, fall, is the fall itself. Correct. What you just don't want to do is send the message that in order to prevent falls, we need to immobilize people. Correct. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Yeah, very good point. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, again, this is a topic where we could keep going. Uh, we had a large number of people calling in today. We, are, we apologize to all those who we may not have gotten to their calls. It's been a wonderful discussion. I really want to thank you, Dr. Tenetti, for joining us today. Happy to do it. Thank you. Uh, as a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next call takes place on Wednesday, May 19th. The article is, Will This Patient Develop Persistent Disabling Low Back Pain? by Dr. Roger Chu, uh, which appeared in the JAMA uh, April 7, uh, 2010 issue, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to all of you for being a part of Arthur in the room today, and good day.